Our texts for this morning are Isaiah 38 and 39. Now, these are uh, two different stories. Isaiah 38 is a story of King Hezekiah becoming sick, and then 39 is a story of some Babylonian envoys coming to King Hezekiah. And so we're going to read a selection of both of these stories. We'll be able to read all of chapter 39 because it's short, but we'll read a selection from chapter 38. So Sharon will read for us from chapter 38, and then Ryan from 39. We're then going to turn to 2 Chronicles 32. This actually gives us some background to what we're reading in Isaiah and maybe helps us to understand some of what is going on in these texts. Specifically, uh, we're going to learn about Hezekiah's wealth and his pride. And so you can look especially for words about that in 2 Chronicles. And then finally, in uh, Romans 2.4, Don will come and read for us. And it will tell us what God's kindness, what God's blessing is meant to produce in our lives as opposed to what it so often produces. So let me pray for us briefly that God would open his word to us, and then I'll welcome uh, Sharon Ford to read. Heavenly Father, we need your word to give us life, to open our eyes to what is true so that we won't be blinded by the deceitfulness of sin. So God, would you give your word to us now in power, Lord, both as it is read and as I preach it, would you help me to preach your word faithfully and rightly? And God, would your spirit move um, to work the good transformation in each of our lives that you so eagerly desire for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 38, 1 through 6. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This is Isaiah chapter 39, verses 1 through 8. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. 
Second Chronicles 32, starting in verse 22. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all of his enemies, and he provided for them on every side. And many brought gifts to the Lord to Jerusalem and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations from that time onward. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, and for all kinds of costly vessels, storehouses also for the yields of grain, wine, and oil, and stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds. He likewise provided cities for himself, and flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great possessions. This same Hezekiah closed the upper outlet of the waters of Jehan and directed them down to the west side of the city of David, and Hezekiah prospered in all of his works. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princess of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his good deeds... Behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper part of the tombs of the sons of David. And all, Ju- and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did him honor at his death. And Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Romans 2, 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? As we come to our text this morning, beloved, I think the main question the text asks of us is what is truly best in life? What is truly best in life? Specifically, Our possessions, our leisure, our wealth and luxury, are these things best in life? Are these things what make for a good life? Or is God and knowing him the best in life, what makes for a good life? That is the question that this text presents us with. What will we choose? What will we consider best? Wealth or God? We hear in the South Hills of Pittsburgh have almost unlimited access to enjoyment of every kind. What food could your heart desire? You can find whatever food you want in the restaurants and grocery stores around us. If you can't find it here, you can certainly order whatever you want from online. It can be here in just a couple days. What leisure could you desire? Anything that you would like to do, even in this winter season, is available to you? Everything from jumping on trampolines to skating on ice to skiing down hills to sitting by a nice warm fire. Every type of leisure is available to us. 
What type of entertainment could you desire? Any movie ever made, any song ever written, even many live performances in our concert halls downtown, these are all available to us. What luxuries could we desire? The softest pillows, the most nicely scented candles, the plushest blankets, the warmest coats, all of these things are available to us and so much more. With just a click of a button, we can find any information we want. We can travel anywhere in the world we want. We can go to any doctor that we want to see. There's any kind of earthly blessing, of earthly prosperity that is offered to us here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And so, so often the the world thinks, and we can be tempted to think this way too, that we should be able to craft for ourselves a very nice life, right? Because we have all of these luxuries. We have all the food and leisure and entertainment, all of these things that we could desire at our disposal. We should be able to have a good life, right? And yet, In all of these things, what the text this morning tells us is that one big flashing red sign should come to mind when we think of indulging in all these things. And that sign says danger. There is danger in all of these things. These things are not always a good gift And we can far too easily and blindly suppose that these things are always good for us. When in reality, these things are temptations that often lead us away from what is truly best in life, from what is truly good in life. They lie to us and tell us that in these things, we can have satisfaction, we can have a good life. When in reality, they are not able to provide that. Now, understand that I am not saying that these luxuries and entertainment and food and all these things are bad or wrong. All of them can be used in a good way. 1 Timothy 4.4 says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So there is no food that is evil, no leisure that is evil, or entertainment, or luxury, or any of these things that are evil in and of themselves. As long as we receive them, with thanksgiving, and 1 Timothy 4.5 goes on to say that these things are made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so if we are enjoying all of these things prayerfully and considering them properly in light of God's word, then there is nothing that we need to deny ourselves in and of itself. So these things are not wrong. They're not wrong, but scripture does call them dangerous. Now take Take fire as a clear example, something that is a gift of God, but we also very readily recognize as being dangerous. Now, fire is a very good thing. Without fire, our lives would be incredibly impoverished. In my own home, if I did not have fire, I couldn't cook food on my gas stovetop. I couldn't heat my house with my gas furnace. I couldn't heat water with my gas boiler. All of these things need fire, and so fire is good, and I am glad that I have fire in my home to help me in all these ways. And yet, just because fire is good and offers me all of these nice benefits does not mean that it is good in every single situation. Fire is also dangerous. If you get too close to fire, you will get burned. If fire escapes from its confines and it will damage property and could even destroy my entire house, fire can even kill me. And so we enjoy fire in its proper time, in its proper place and way, 
But we understand that it is dangerous, and therefore we are careful about how we use it. So it is, beloved, with all the pleasures of life. As the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.23, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. As believers, we can partake in anything we like, but not all of these things will actually build us up or be helpful. Not all these things will actually contribute to a good life. Many of these things will lead us away from the Lord. Some of these things may be very good for us spiritually in very small amounts, but they become toxic as soon as we overdose on them. The point is that we cannot blithely enjoy all the pleasures that the South Hills of Pittsburgh has to offer us. Those who offer these pleasures are not concerned mainly about our spiritual health or about us achieving what is best in life. We ourselves must have wisdom and discernment to understand the dangers that pleasures offer and to adjust our lives accordingly. Now, the way that this passage gets us to that point, the way that this passage displays to us the dangers of earthly treasures is by telling us two stories of a man who was in our situation exactly. King Hezekiah himself had access to all the luxuries that his heart could desire, and yet he failed to consider them dangerous. He thought ignorantly, like a lamb led to slaughter, that all of these things were just innocent fun, and he didn't need to concern himself with overindulging. Perhaps his mind reasoned, these things are good gifts from God, and God delivered me from death so that I can enjoy these things. So why should I worry about how much of these pleasures I enjoy? King Hezekiah was a man of great wealth and prosperity, just as we are, and therefore I believe that we can learn from him in our own context today. And so as I mentioned, there are these two stories in chapters 38 and 39. And 38 is the story of Hezekiah getting deathly sick and then turns to the Lord and he's delivered from his sickness. In chapter 39, it's a story of a foreign diplomatic party coming to honor him. And he has all this wealth that he shows them. And yet in the end, he ends up condemned. In other words, in one story, we begin with trouble, we begin with suffering, and we end with miraculous recovery. And then the second story, we begin with prosperity and wealth, and we end in disaster. Through reading these two stories back to back, we are forced to ask the question, what is truly best in life? Is the suffering unto death that Hezekiah experienced better because it ended in his resurrection, it ended in his deliverance? Or is wealth and prosperity better because it ended in his condemnation? Which one was better for Hezekiah, sickness or prosperity? So let's look a little more closely at these stories now. First, a little historical context. Hezekiah was known as one of the best kings in the history of Judah. He was one of the kings that followed God with all of his heart. In 2 Chronicles 31, verses 20 and 21, it's put like this. It says, Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God, and every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God, 
And in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart, and he prospered. And so Hezekiah was doing those things that he thought would please the Lord. The reign of Hezekiah was indeed a time of great prosperity for Judah. He had great wealth and abundance. And yet, as we saw last week, in the seventh year of Hezekiah's reign, the Assyrians came up to Jerusalem to besiege it. And yet Hezekiah cries out to God, and God defeats the Assyrians and saves Jerusalem. Now, Isaiah doesn't tell us exactly how long after this deliverance Hezekiah fell ill, but by piecing together various timelines, we know that it was in the very close vicinity of this deliverance from the Assyrians. Isaiah 38 verse 1 begins with the words, In those days. So Hezekiah wants us to keep in mind this great deliverance that Jerusalem experienced as we read these next two chapters. So imagine that you're Hezekiah, and you have all this wealth, the Lord is prospering you. You've even just seen this greatest miracle that you have ever thought possible, the destruction of the mighty Assyrian army in one night. And now Isaiah the prophet comes to you. This is chapter 38, verse 1. And Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, and you shall not recover. Here you are, thinking that you had made it out of the worst danger you could possibly imagine, only to get sick and be told by the Lord that you will die. So at that moment, Hezekiah is living in the shadow of death. All the good things that he has accomplished, all the wealth that he has accumulated, all the deliverance that he has just been performed is about to be stripped away from him. As Hezekiah himself says in 38 verse 18, For Sheol, the place of the dead, does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. Hezekiah is about to lose everything. Last week, I asked you what you would do in your moment of greatest fear or desperation, and that question again applies here. You know you are about to die. What are you going to do? Do you simply live it up while you still can? Do you scramble everywhere searching for some kind of cure? What did Hezekiah do? Chapter 38, verse 2. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to Yahweh and said, Please, O Yahweh, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And Hezekiah's moment of pain and his moment of greatest suffering and greatest fear, he turned to the Lord and he prayed. And so what do we see happen in light of Hezekiah's prayer? Verses 4 to 6 of chapter 38. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says Yahweh, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and will defend this city. Now, we don't know what kind of 
threat Jerusalem was under at this phase, but God clearly promises to Hezekiah that he will not die, that he will get many more years of life. He is delivered. In the same way, when you yourself go through a trial, your mind does not necessarily need to be set on just how miserable your life is and when this trial may be over and how long you're going to have to deal with this pain. Rather, you can be like Hezekiah. You can turn to the Lord in prayer and you can ask for the Lord's deliverance. You can fix your mind on what sort of great good God could bring out of your present trial, of your present suffering. God is able to accomplish whatever sort of deliverance he wants to accomplish. For none of us is our suffering, is our pain, the last word in our lives. No, when we seek God and when we trust him, we know that God is working these things toward our good. And so we hope in the Lord. We don't simply wallow in our suffering and in our pain. We turn to God and we pray and we trust that he is going to work a great redemption. Suffering was ultimately to Hezekiah's good. He met the Lord in his suffering. He was turned to the Lord in his suffering and he received healing directly from the Lord in his suffering in a promise of extended life. Beloved, I think all of us would love to hear this word from the Lord about how we will be delivered and how our lives will be extended. This is indeed a good gift of God to come in the midst of suffering. And yet, after this happens, in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 25, the inspired author tells us, But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done for him, for his heart was proud. In the words of Romans 2, 4, which we read, God's kindness did not lead him to repentance. God's kindness led him to presumption, led him to pride led him to arrogance, led him to being self-satisfied and at ease. And this is precisely what is illustrated in the next story, in the story of chapter 39. I apologize for skipping over so many verses in chapter 38, but I'm trying to focus on the main message of these verses. So I'm going to jump forward to chapter 39. And so when we get to Isaiah 39 in verses 1 and 2, it gives us the context. It says, at that time, so we're still thinking same time frame, at that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in all his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Now what Hezekiah does here at first glance seems fairly innocent, does it not? It seems even generous that he has these visitors from a foreign country and he welcomes them into his home and he shows them all of his things. He's very transparent and open with them. Seems like an honest thing to do. And yet... God can see the heart. God knows why Hezekiah shows these envoys all of these things. And I think that for all of us human beings who have ever wanted to impress someone else, it's easy for us also to understand why, ultimately, Hezekiah showed these envoys 
all that he had. Here were these envoys from an up-and-coming power. No doubt they were dressed in very fancy clothes. And the text says that they brought very many nice gifts to King Hezekiah. And so they come into Hezekiah's court and Hezekiah sees them and he certainly thinks, ah, here are some of my peers. Here are people with wealth like me. Here are people with power like me. And everything else in life fades away as he tries to convince these envoys that he really is as good as them. He really does have the the wealth that they have. He really does have the power that they have. In other words, it is purely fear of man, a desire to impress people that leads Hezekiah to show these envoys all that he has. Second Chronicles 32 verse 31 tells us that God used this opportunity, that he placed these envoys there in order to test Hezekiah. Would Hezekiah remember that the Lord really is the only one that he should please? Would Hezekiah remember that the Lord is the one that gave him all of his wealth? Will Hezekiah remember that it is to the Lord that all honor is due? Or will he just desire to fit in with the nations, to be popular among the in crowd? Will will Hezekiah look to God and to God alone for his significance and security? Or will he try to find his security, his significance in his relationship with other people? In being impressed, in being impressive to the Babylonian envoys. Beloved, the fear of man and a desire to fit in with other people is an insidious desire. It so easily causes us to turn away from what is right. It so easily causes us to turn away from obeying God and God alone. It causes us to justify all sorts of disobedience and aberrations. Now, in my own heart, when I consider this, I know that I need to look no further than the topic of evangelism. I know that what other people most need to hear is they need to hear about Jesus. I know that Jesus commands us to share the good news about him. And yet, so often when I'm in conversation with others, I refrain, I I shy away from really talking about Jesus as much as I could. And why do I do that? Well, it's very simple. I I want to fit in. (laughs) I want other people to like me. I want them to be impressed by me. I want them to think well of me. And so I, I say, I convince myself, you know, in this instance, I don't really need to talk about Jesus. I don't really need to share the good news. There's good things about me just fitting in here, about them liking me. And so I excuse my disobedience in order to fit in with others around me. I want the praise of the world more than I want the praise of God. And I know that I am a human like everyone else in this room. I'm sure all of you can sympathize with times in your life when you were with other people, with someone else, that you just really wanted to impress them. You wanted them to think well of you. It could even be the most foolish moment. I know sometimes I've walked into fancy stores, you know, and there's a representative there who I don't know, who I'll never see again, and yet I really don't want that person to think that I can't afford everything in this store, right? So I I try to show him that I'm really interested in the most expensive things just because I want him to be impressed at me. 
All of us have times in our lives when we say, you know what, what I care about most, what I really want to happen here is I want others to think that I'm good. I want others to think that I'm all right. And so we abandon the path of faithfulness and we pursue being approved by the world. If anything, this temptation to fit in is even greater for us today than it was in Hezekiah's day. One of the most fascinating insights to me in de Tocqueville's classic Democracy in America is he points out how in democratic societies, which were a new idea at the time, he hadn't seen too many of them, and so he was traveling around America and he was taking notes. He was saying, okay, what is democratic society really like? He realized that societal pressure doesn't so much come from the king and from the aristocracy as it comes from every other person in the nation. There is an intense pressure to conform. There is an intense pressure to fit in. In America today, there is an intense pressure that we just be like everyone else, that if we're not like everyone else, then we're somehow disrupting this nation of America. And yet we as Christians should never fear disrupting the status quo. We should never fear not fitting in. In fact, part of our Christian calling, as we should understand it, is precisely to not fit in, is to be different, is to stand out in some ways. Now, obviously, we don't want to be hated. That's not what we're inviting. But we do say that we are not pursuing the approval of the world. We are not living under the fear of man desiring to impress other people. No, we live for God and for God alone. And yet, Hezekiah, in his wealth and all this great abundance that God had poured out on him, suddenly forgot that. He forgot that he was supposed to seek God's approval and God's approval alone. And so what happens? When Isaiah chapter 39, verses 3 to 7, here's what we read as the consequence for Hezekiah's forgetfulness. It says, Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. God's judgment is swift and it is great. You see, Hezekiah's prosperity, his enjoyment of all this earthly wealth had made him forgetful of God and made him want to fit in with the world around him. And so it would ultimately end in judgment. Whereas the pain and suffering of sickness caused Hezekiah to turn toward God in prayer, pleasure and prosperity has caused him to turn away from the Lord and to the fear of man. John Calvin has an amazing quote about this in his commentary. He says that Hezekiah was unshaken when all was nearly ruined, but he is vanquished by these flatteries and does not resist vain 
ambition. Beloved, what is more dangerous to our souls? Is suffering and sickness more dangerous? Or is wealth and prosperity more dangerous? What this story of Hezekiah shows us is that wealth and prosperity is far more dangerous to our souls, to our lives, than suffering and hardship is. We see the ultimate effect of prosperity upon us in Hezekiah's response in verse 8 of chapter 39. It says, Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. Beloved, this is where prosperity ultimately leads us. If we indulge in it uncritically, if we are not cautious with it, We live for peace and security in our own days. We think, ah, as long as I'm doing okay, as long as I'm happy, as long as I have what I need, and that's all I really need. I'm not bothered about anything else. Hezekiah is not bothered by the fact that his own children will be taken away as slaves to Babylon because he has been so deceived by the pleasures of the world, by the wealth that God has given him. Even though for most of his life he is this faithful king praying to God, seeing God's deliverance, over time the subtle deceit of the pleasures of this world enter into his life and he is led to destruction. He is led to seek nothing more than his own peace and his own security. Beloved, may it not be so with us. May we not be deceived by the pleasures of this life, the pleasures that so surround us. Let us not think that these things are the best things in life. Let us understand that they are dangers. Now, because of the way that my mind works, and some of you may be thinking the same thing, asking the same question, I wonder why. Why is it that God would fill this earth with so many good things if they are so dangerous to us? Why would God pour out his blessings on Hezekiah if he knew that these blessings would ultimately lead Hezekiah away from him? It's the same question we can go back to in the Garden of Eden itself. Why, God, why would you put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that looks so good to eat, that looks so shiny, why would you put it there? If you knew it was dangerous, why does God do this? Well, while there are depths to this question that I can't address in this short conclusion to the message, the most straightforward answer to give is testing. The Lord wants to test us. In 2 Chronicles 32 verse 21, Scripture says that God left Hezekiah to himself in this matter of the Babylonian envoys, in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. God places these pleasures, these luxuries, this entertainment in our lives in order to test us, to know all that is in our hearts. You see, beloved, God has created this world as a grand stage, and he has placed us as actors at this very time in history. And the whole object of this grand story that God is writing across all of creation is the story to display his own beauty and his own worth. 
Now, in any story, the magnitude of a triumph is measured by the magnitude of a struggle. Small struggles yield small triumphs, and big troubles yield big triumphs, right? Nobody wants to read a story about someone who only suffered a broken fingernail, right? We want to read stories of great trial, of great suffering, and of great victory. That's good storytelling. Now, if any of you have ever read or seen The Lord of the Rings, then you know that the battle for Helm's Deep is an incredible victory precisely because it is an incredible battle. It is the climax of all the forces of good and evil coming together at Helm's Deep for one climactic battle. There were many smaller conflicts and smaller victories and smaller defeats along the way, but it all comes to a head in one moment at Helm's Deep, an enormous trial with an enormous victory. Beloved, the way that God wants to be exalted in the story of our lives is to be the victor in our own internal struggles and trials. John Piper writes in Desiring God that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God gets the glory when we are satisfied in him. That means that God is winning the victory in our life. He is getting the glory in the life when we are looking to God and we are saying, you, Lord, are better than anything else I might choose. God gets the glory in our lives when we can look out across all the pleasures and luxuries that the South Hills of Pittsburgh has to offer, and we can say, Lord, you are better than any entertainment I could find, than any luxury I could find, than any food I can enjoy, than anything else that's offered here, Lord. You are better. This is the way that God magnifies himself in our lives. And so we must always consider in the choices we make when we're indulging in various kinds of pleasures or entertainment or luxury, we ask ourselves the question, who is winning in this moment? Who am I glorifying in this moment? Am I glorifying the Lord by saying that he is better than earthly things? Or am I glorifying the earthly things themselves, by saying they are more to be desired than the Lord alone. So this is why God introduces pleasure in our lives to tempt us. He is trying to tell all of creation a great story about how he is better than any other thing. And again, this story that we see in Isaiah 38 and 39 is pointing out that the greatest trial in our lives, the greatest battle in our lives, the helm's deep of our lives is not when we are suffering. It's not when we are near death. It is natural for us often to turn to the Lord in our suffering. The helm's deep of our lives, beloved, is the pleasures that tick by every day saying, come after me, come enjoy me. I will make your life good. That is the ultimate battle that we face. And if God gets victory over that battle, then God gets glory indeed. Beloved, we have a great opportunity here in the South Hills of Pittsburgh, again, better than most other places in the world, to show that God truly is better than anything else that exists. 
We have this opportunity precisely because we have access to every good thing. Beloved, how wonderful would it be if God would strengthen us to not take advantage of all these good gifts that were offered and instead look to him as the great giver. Instead, give all praise and honor to him. Now, this is not to say that we need to live like monks, but it is to say that we live soberly and sacrificially for the sake of others. We watch our lives and we watch our enjoyment of earthly things carefully so as to make sure that those things are not displacing God in our hearts, in our affections. Beloved, these earthly things are dangerous, and therefore we must be wary. And there are good examples before us. For myself, John Piper was an excellent example, even though he could live a very wealthy and prosperous life. He lives in a very small and rundown house and often even denies fixing basic problems just because he wants to give so much away to missions and to those in need. Randy Alcorn is another great example. If you've never read his story, I encourage you to read the story of Randy Alcorn. Even in our own body, I think we have good examples of this. Don himself is a good example of denying the pleasures of the world in order to give more away to others. Ryan and Nate also do a good job of not just living for this world, but living carefully about the pleasures that they enjoy. And so look to the elders that we have. Find other role models around you to see how even in America, we don't need to enjoy all the pleasures that are on offer, but we can glorify God by denying ourselves these things. But ultimately, beloved, what we most clearly need to see, that the hero that we most ultimately need to have is Jesus Christ himself. You see, in the In the battles of our life, in this battle that God has given us, giving us pleasures in order to test us and to see what is in our hearts, there is one who goes before us. There is one who perfectly showed us the way. Jesus Christ is the one who perfectly showed us how to deny ourselves the pleasures of this earth and instead live for the glory of God and live for the good of others. We know that Jesus Christ not only turned down the offer of all the nations on earth as he was standing atop the temple with Satan tempting him. He not only left the wealth and the perfect bliss of heaven. When he came to earth, he actually took up the most painful, agonizing thing that we could imagine. He took up the cross of his own execution. Beloved Jesus could have enjoyed all the pleasures of the world. He could have forever enjoyed all the pleasures of heaven. And yet, instead of doing this, he came and he suffered and he died for you and for me. Beloved, in doing this, Jesus finally and definitively showed that what is truly best in life is not earthly pleasures and earthly enjoyment. It is God himself. After all, we know that Jesus was not foolish. Jesus knew all things and he had all things and he could experience all things. And of all things he chose to experience, he chose to experience suffering with God rather than to experience pleasures without God. And beloved, 
When we are baptized, we die with Christ and we are raised up with him precisely in this way. That self-denying power of Jesus then works itself out in our lives too. We begin to fight the constant temptation to pleasure, not by steely-eyed resolve, but by faith in the one who loved us and died for us. If he who knew everything and owned everything in the world would, instead of enjoying riches, choose to be poured out for others, how foolish would we be to choose otherwise, beloved? Are we smarter than him? Do we know something about pleasure that he did not know? And so we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and we follow in his footsteps. And scripture tells us that because Jesus was obedient unto death, this is Philippians chapter 2, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, the greater the struggle, the greater the victory. Because Jesus died upon that cross, he gets the name that is above every other name. And beloved, God has a reward prepared for us as well. If we will fight the battle against pleasure here and now, fight the battle against prosperity and earthly blessing, then we will be able to enter into our heavenly home and receive the praise of God himself. Beloved, God is better. God is what is best in life. And so, beloved, I encourage you, I exhort you to not simply go the way of the world and uncritically enjoy every last thing that is on offer here in the South Hills of Pittsburgh, but rather pour yourself out for God and for others and you will find a life that is far richer, a life that is far better than anything that earthly pleasures could give you. Well, let me pray for us now, and then I'll open up to you to prayers of confession and petition to God. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would open our eyes. Lord, I know that all of us have been blinded to some degree by all the advertisement that is around us, by all the prosperity that's around us, by all the goods that are for sale around us, to think that it is just normal for us to enjoy every good thing that this world has to offer. Lord, help us to not be so deceived. Help us to see what is truly best in life, what truly matters. And Lord, help us to live according to that great principle.